0: This is TechSnap, episode 399 for March 15th, 2019. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems Network and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes and I'm joined once again by Jim. Hello Jim. What's up everybody? Off-air, you and I had been talking a little bit about some of our favorite authors, and for both of us, that includes William Gibson. And while he made plenty of great predictions about the terrifying world we may have lived in, he missed a few things that, well, I think we should probably talk about today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One of my favorite things to uh, confuse my family with is, you know, anytime something comes up with, like you know, Alexa or, you know, hey, Google is Siri all that, you know, I'll I'll make comments like Wintermute is listening and they, you know, give me funny looks. One of the issues that uh, Gibson missed with AI is the possibility that we would accidentally make it incredibly racist.
0: Yeah, I think we all hoped that uh, the machines we built would be better than the flaws that we all too often have. But unfortunately, that's not really at all the case. And for a practical example, let's wind back the clock a bit to 2016, the hopeful days of the new AI era. Let's talk about Tay, a chatbot released by Microsoft. And you, you might remember this because it made it made the news at the time for some particularly unsavory reasons. And at the time, I, I kind of just laughed. But really, it's, a, it's really a sign of a bigger problem.
1: Yeah, so Microsoft put Tay online, and uh, the idea was pretty cool. So here's this virtual young woman that uh, will, you know, answer your chat requests on a variety of instant message platforms and just have, you know, what appears to be a pleasant human conversation with you. Sort of like if you're as old as I am, you might remember Eliza from way back in the early eighties, only a lot smarter. The problem was that, uh, you know, yes, Tay was a lot smarter and unfortunately she was smart enough to learn life lessons from Nazis. And under 24 hours, Microsoft had to make the decision to pull the plug on Tay and get her offline before she could damage their brand any further.
0: And this really just shows the danger in these systems because they didn't intend for that, right? This was an experiment put about out there with some learning powered in the background to try to interact with users and use that information as feedback to adjust how Tay would respond. Unfortunately, people being awful, well, the results weren't great.
1: It's a pretty easy assumption to make that Microsoft absolutely did not intend to unleash a Nazi AI on the Internet. I mean, that's it's pretty bad for the brand, right? One of the classic tests of artificial intelligence is whether or not it can pass a Turing test. And simply speaking, the idea behind a Turing test is giving five minutes of being able to converse with what might be an artificial intelligence or might be a human, you shouldn't be able to determine with any confidence which is which. And in order to make that possible, Tay had to be able to learn from the people she was conversing with. In some cases, she would repeat restatements of things that she had heard before or learn new concepts. And when the fine, fine people, uh, scare quotes intended at 4chan, learned of this thing being unleashed on the Internet, they immediately descended on it in droves to teach it how to be racist, sexist, and otherwise awful. And they succeeded very quickly. That's a theme we're
0: going to see today where – Regardless of the algorithms in play, what ends up mattering a lot is the data. And in this case, obviously, that was a giant amount of bias data sent
1: by these users. But it's far more complicated than that. (sighs) At least it'll become more complicated than that. But, uh, you know, it feels fairly uncomplicated when you train any kind of burgeoning new intelligence on a corpus of data derived from 4chan. You're probably not going to get a healthy, well-adjusted result. So Microsoft, trying
0: to make the best of this situation, took Tay offline and sort of quietly introduced her sister, Zoe.
1: This is another one of those really interesting cautionary tales. We all know where the road paved with good intentions leads, and Zoe is a great example of that. So we had these folks at Microsoft who had unintentionally created an artificial intelligence that conversed with real humans and started spewing really hateful, racist, awful things, And they wanted to make sure that that wouldn't happen again. And the way that they made sure that it wouldn't happen again is by, again, with the best of intentions, deliberately creating a bot that insisted on being horribly racist. Uh, For those of you who are old enough, you may remember a time when uh, Crayola had flesh-colored crayons in their box. The only problem was the folks who made those crayons were overwhelmingly, if not entirely, white people. So they made a crayon color that was similar to your generic Caucasian American skin tone, and just called it flesh. Now this seems fine if you are a white person; you don't think very hard about it. Okay, sure, it looks kind of like skin. Why not? But if you're a black or a brown person, this basically serves as a way of the universe reminding you that uh, you know you're you're not the default value of human, and that's a real problem. And when Microsoft created Zoe. They wanted to make certain that she couldn't learn racist lessons, so what they did is they made her refuse to talk about anything that might be racially charged, ethnically charged, or politically charged. And as a result... If you attempted to tell Zoe something like, oh, hey, I got a cute new hijab today, she would shut you down very coldly. Similarly, you couldn't talk to her about your bar mitzvah or any number of other things. Uh, She would start out saying that she didn't want to talk about that and get increasingly colder until she literally just hung up on you.
0: Yeah, it kind of appears that that Zoe was trained to think that certain religions, races, places, people, nearly all of them corresponding to the various trolling efforts that affected Tay, were just efforts by subversive people to influence the bot, instead of you know actually genuine conversations from people in
1: those groups. Yeah, and the uh, the the bias it went even further than that. You, it might be tempting to say, well, you know, you you make an omelet, you break a few eggs, so. Zoe doesn't want to talk about religion. That's fine. But there, there are examples that you can see online where somebody would say something like, I'm going to church on Sunday. And Zoe would be like, Oh snap, dog, I'm there. And then you'd say something about uh, attending bar mitzvah or reading the Torah. And she would get upset and close the conversation. That can't feel good to somebody who isn't the default white Christian person who, with all the best intentions, was clearly all the programmers had thought about when they were creating the AI.
0: That's obviously horrible, but it could be tempting to say, all right, well, these sort of efforts from Microsoft weren't super successful, but does this really matter? I would say absolutely, because more and more, we've seen machine learning-derived algorithms being deployed in all aspects of our life. And and I worry that, in general, the public doesn't necessarily understand the implications and and tend to assume that this is all going to work out, it's going to be fair. That's just not the case.
1: So Wes, I did want to push back real quick. You know, you you characterized Zoe and Tay as being two unsuccessful attempts. And while I don't really disagree, I don't personally disagree with you that they're unsuccessful um, although Tay got pulled before 24 hours were up, Zoe was online for more than two years. She went up in fall 2016 and, uh, she was only taken down from conversations on everything from Facebook to Twitter, to Instagram, to Skype, to kick, to you name it as of March this month, this year. So she was online for more than two years and at Zoe.ai right now, they still talk about her profile being up as a, uh, showcase of public successes in conversational AI.
0: So this is clearly something these companies are interested in and are pouring a lot of effort and value into.
1: I do want to be fair to both sides here. It's not like there is no success involved in Zoe. In terms of just passing a Turing test, Zoe really was pretty successful by any past metric. It was more possible to suspend your disbelief and believe that you were chatting with a real, if somewhat shallow and vapid human teenager when talking to Zoe than with any other chatbot I've ever interacted with. And it's something that I've been pretty interested in playing with. I can't tell you how many hours way back in the day I used to spend messing around with Eliza on my old Apple IIc and, you know, similar chatbots on up the line.
0: That's a great point. And I think it's partially because of the success of some of these models and and techniques that this stuff really matters. And it's why we're talking about it because these are problems that really, it, it used to be that humans had to do, right? We're trying to replace humans or, or at least augment human systems, things like self-driving cars, Sentiment classifications for for meaning of sentences, translation, or just computer vision. And all of these involve some level of judgment. And that's where it gets a little different, right? We think about some computer algorithms like a a sorting algorithm. And while they're very clever and interesting, fundamentally, it's basically, you know, just just a predetermined system. It's a better way of something that you might be able to do by yourself with a pen and paper. Unfortunately, we don't really have a great way to describe the algorithm behind driving a car. So instead, we've developed complex systems that try to infer all the little judgments it takes to make those decisions and and operate a complex situation from a vast array of data. And that's where it gets complicated.
1: Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I feel like uh, people have a lot of trouble understanding. Uh, When you see somebody who works with machine learning and neural networks start describing the process to people, they'll frequently say things like, and we don't really understand how the machine made those decisions or learned those things. And, uh, you know, people listening will frequently get pretty upset. Well, you know, that's got to be bogus. What do you mean you don't understand? Of course you do. You programmed it. But that's the thing. A neural network very specifically is not a traditional application of formal logic where you yourself identify the things that are different between one class of thing than another and tell the machine, uh, you know, if you want to recognize dogs and cats, you look for walking on four legs and fur and pointy ears, that kind of thing. If you're training a neural network, you don't tell it a dog has four legs and a cat has four legs. You show it 10,000 pictures of dogs and cats, and you just tell them which pictures are dogs and which ones are cats, and let the machine figure out what the differences are all on its own.
0: That is a great example, and, and sort of demonstrates what, what's known as supervised learning, where you've you've had humans go through, take some data, and and pre-tag it. So you've got like, this is definitely a picture of a cat, and this is definitely a picture of a dog. And you Once you've set up the machine learning algorithms, you just feed it a whole bunch of that data and let it develop basically its own intuition about how to make those judgment calls. Once you've got that model trained, you can then go apply it in the field with new images and have it try to tell you, like, I think this is a cat or I think this is a dog. Of course, that's tricky, but it really shows everything it learned, it came from that initial data set.
1: And the amazing thing there is that very frequently you'll discover that the machine has figured out some way to identify, uh, you know, in, in this rather shallow example, we say a cat or a dog. But whatever it is you've had this thing classify, it will very frequently discover ways of identifying the classes that you've you've taught it by feeding it a corpus, you know, meaning just a body of data. It'll figure out ways of identifying those things that you didn't know about to begin with. It can get better at recognizing what they are than uh, than you were when you started out. And so that brings us to our second major classification of machine learning, unsupervised learning. Now, in unsupervised learning, you've previously trained your neural network on a large corpus of data, and you've fed it classifications on lots of individual items in that corpus. So it's learned how to identify patterns. And at this point, you feed it a whole bunch of new data that you have not pre-classified, and you allow it to make its own decisions about what particular classifications of the ones it knows about any of those individual new items might happen to belong to.
0: Now, of course, it's never quite so clear cut. There's also semi-supervised learning, uh, often often labeling data. You know that takes a human cost. I, I've worked at places where they basically outsourced to the employees and said, "Hey, we've got all this stuff, and uh, the people actually doing this research don't want to sit here and label all of it. So, can you guys help?" So there's also semi-supervised which is sort of in between the two where you you've got some some labeled and supervised learning going on but you also just rely on the machines to infer its own classifications.
1: Well, and you know ultimately semi-supervised learning is it's pretty that's pretty much where it's at. There's a tendency in large corporations particularly to want to just do everything unsupervised, like train the neural network and then let it loose. The machine will do the job, and uh, that's the cheapest, easiest way to manage these massive-scale problems. One of the largest-scale problems that corporations face today is a moderation of human-generated content, whether it be on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, you name it. The human cost of moderating all that stuff when a significant fraction of the entire human species is on the internet now is enormous. In a fairly content population of users, you might easily be able to get away with, say, one moderator for every 100 or maybe even every 1,000 users when it's a full-time job, and that'll be sufficient. There's a couple of problems there. One is that not all populations are content, and where one full-time human moderator might be able to manage a 100 or even 1,000 users that are participating in discourse honestly, a single really determined troll can bring that ratio close to 1 to 1.
0: It is a tough and troll-filled world out there, unfortunately. There's also one more type of common machine learning that you're probably going to see, and that's the type when you're, you're trying to beat, beat a game, maybe, like you've seen a lot of examples of machines playing chess or Go, and that's reinforcement learning, where the model you've trained is exposed to an environment, and then it's basically trial or error, and it really makes me think about training dogs, because it's hard to communicate exactly what you want, but you can give feedback, right? So... The machine or the animal does something you like, and you say, yes, that was good. Keep doing that. And through that method, repeatedly, with lots of data, lots of interactions, eventually, learning can take place. All of these methods are, are different. And I don't want to say this is, this is not an exhaustive guide. This is a complex and actively developing field. But I hope what this little breakdown can underscore, this is all driven by either broad data that humans have curated and selected, or through active feedback from humans every single one of those is a place that bias can creep in.
1: I do want to stress that we're coming down pretty negatively overall on artificial intelligence and machine learning in this episode because we're specifically focusing on ethics and where those ethics have gone wrong to date. But with that said... Neural networks are an incredibly valuable tool and they're something that we need going forward. The problem is just that we have to treat them for what they are. They're a tool that can greatly expand the leverage of a certain number of humans doing useful work. Um, In the sysadmin field, you know, we have seen it go from you'll have a sysadmin for any one machine to sysadmins managing a few tens of machines to, you know, now these days with virtual machines and containers, a single enterprise sysadmin might very well be personally responsible for thousands of machines. But you do still need the sysadmin. The thing that has changed is not whether you have sysadmins or not. It's how great their reach can be, how large the scope of their effort can go. And that's what neural networks can really do for us. They can take the efforts of a few people and expand them to a far greater scale than they otherwise would be able to. Where you have problems is when you try to remove that human element entirely.
0: And it's important to stress we're still learning the best ways to use this technology. That's why I think it's important to keep the discussion going and be aware of it. We live in an economy and a world where there's just more and more and more data available, whether it's from your smartphone or the IoT devices in your home or the cameras being installed on the street. And that data is not just sitting idly on servers. It's being used by businesses, governments, private individuals to to train some of these models. And we need to be thinking about what those implications might
1: be. Well, you know, Wes, as long as we're putting our tin full of hats on, I should mention, too, that although a lot of that data truly is just sitting on servers relatively idle right now, as AI becomes more and more capable, a lot of it is going to be gone over at a later date with more capable neural networks and better trained ones than we have right now.
0: Yeah, we have not seen The Last of Us, and really, it's just getting started. Now, recently, Jim, you sent me a great example of how even with the best intentions and, and and just using common methods, not trying to do anything crazy or experimental or brand new, just applying some fundamental machine learning techniques on a regular data set can have terrifying consequences.
1: Yeah, so this is a series of blog posts from a uh, machine learning researcher named Robin Speer, and I found it incredibly enlightening. Uh, you know, a lot of us who are very active on social media and have encountered some truly horrible people, um, have had bad experiences with moderation, whether it be on Facebook, Twitter, or, you know, really any of the big platforms. And a lot of those come down to, you know, you feel like there's just this faceless force that just makes all the wrong decisions. Facebook has employed large teams of moderators in uh, centers that greatly resemble the call centers of the 90s and 2000s, where you have A ton of individuals being paid very little to basically sit in a cubicle and just nonstop, by rote, process the same actions over and over again according to a loose script they've been given. And a lot of the problem with this sort of mass moderation technique was that... As corporations do, they want to hire the the cheapest people in the least expensive way. And so what happens is this turns into a global effort because all of the big social media presences are multinational corporations at this point. So they're going to hire people in the places where it's cheapest to hire people. And you end up with people who are acclimated to one culture trying to moderate social media posts in another culture without the best background. They're also, and again, this, you know, harks very much back to the call center concept. They tend to be tremendously overworked and their metrics aren't really based on, did you make great decisions while you were moderating? Their metrics are based on how many items did you clear out of your queue during the eight hours that you were sitting there in that chair? And so when you've actively engaged with this process, whether you've had somebody report a post that you made on social media or whether you've been actively trying to report some horrible thing that some troll did that that you discovered and you want to make sure comes to light, what you discover pretty quickly is the vast majority of reports do absolutely nothing. And what you can encounter sometimes is you get this feeling that very specifically the bad reports, those are the ones that get acted on. Now, in my experience, what I've discovered is that in reality, it's not so much that moderation comes down more on the side of the bad actors. It's that there's a very low percentage that any given report will actually get adverse action taken on it. And success, if success is defined as, you know, getting somebody else's content moderated – Success comes not from making the best report, but from making the most reports, doing it over and over again. Uh, When you make a report and you get this faceless, scripted response that, you know, no community uh, standards were violated, you contest it. You keep contesting it. You keep going back. And eventually somebody will take the opposite reaction because, they're again, they're just trying to clear their queue. And now that content gets moderated, that person gets banned, or that post gets removed, or you name it. And one of the unfortunate things is that trolls very frequently are a lot more dedicated to chasing the game all the way home than people who are just trying to be left alone.
0: Yes, trolls are frequently very motivated. And what might be a mild annoyance to you is something they spend hours and hours thinking and working on.
1: So that's the problem when we have groups of really badly overworked humans doing lots and lots and lots of moderation is, you know, their primary motivation is to clear a whole bunch of items out of a queue. And for whatever reason, it seems like they're much more inclined to not act on a report than to act on one. Now, the problem once you bring machine learning into this is that you know it's expensive, even when you're staffing large groups of moderators in places with very inexpensive costs of living so you can get it done as cheaply as possible, this is a lot of human hours that we're talking about, even grossly overworking these folks. So naturally, if you're the person who's paying this bill, you want to use machine learning to cut down the number of hours that you have to pay for humans to do this. And this is something that neural networks can do. So what you want to do is you want to start with this giant corpus that you already have on hand of moderation actions. You have a tremendous group of reports that you have been saving all this time, and you have got a tremendous group of outcomes of all those reports. You can feed this into a neural network and say, okay, AI, I want you to learn from all these moderation actions that have been performed, and I want you to learn how to perform all those moderation actions yourself to the same standards that we've obviously been using. But what you don't do is you don't go in and you don't formally define all the logic behind it because, honestly, you don't really understand all of it yourself. And what you discover very quickly is the script that you gave your human moderators, it sounds good, it it looks good on corporate letterhead, but it doesn't truly give you the correct path to take for all the available inputs and outputs.
0: Right, really, you're relying on human judgment from all those moderators, and that ends up covering all the little middle cases between the clear guidelines that are published in that document.
1: Exactly. And since we don't have the programmer hours or really understanding available to formally classify all that logic ourselves and just write a traditional expert system to do it, we use a neural network. And when the neural network trains on that corpus of really underpaid, overworked, unacculturated human moderators, it learns a bunch of lessons that you really wish it hadn't.
0: Exactly, that problem is what makes Robin's article so powerful and and such a good example because she's really laid it out very clearly. There's Python examples and all of this. You can run really the whole example at home if you want to. And I encourage you to. The code is great and easy to read. What we're talking about often is sentiment analysis. You're trying to classify a sentence or a, a phrase or some words based on the sentiment. Is this positive, negative? Does it have a good association or a negative association? This happens all the time in, in machine learning, in natural language processing, and it's super useful. It's one of those things that you previously needed a human to do, but of course, it all relies on the data.
1: Right. And, you know, so far we've been kind of asking you to take our word for it. And I feel like, you know, the logical case is pretty clear and obvious and easy to follow that, you know, well, of course, you know, if you feed this system that learns based on the data, a bunch of biased data, then of course it will learn some biased lessons that you didn't want it to. Right. So what Robin does is she starts out with a publicly available corpus called Glove. Uh, Glove has 42 billion tokens that were gained from basically just crawling the web at large, not any particular site, just the whole internet. Get a whole bunch of human language, split it down into 42 billion tokens and about a million vocabulary words. And now taking that corpus your neural network doesn't actually understand what any of that means yet. And of course, it never really does understand it in the way that a human would. It, it can't learn lessons from the sentence, uh, you know, you, you can't teach it to do fourth grade math that way. But what you can do is you can start out with a much smaller seed dictionary, a lexicon of positive and negative words. Now there's one of these that's publicly available too from a researcher named Bing Lu. And you can train the AI on this small seed lexicon of words that you classify as positive or negative, and then you feed it this much larger corpus, the GloVe 42 billion. And although it doesn't know the vast majority of the words in that corpus, because it starts out with these ideas of what is positive or what is negative from Bing Liu's lexicon, now it can tell you with a confidence interval what words that it didn't know, but that were present in GloVe 42B, what kind of sentiment those entail, whether it's positive or negative.
0: Right, exactly. So GloVe kind of lays a, a, a groundwork where you've got relations between words. It's turned them all into vectors in a multidimensional space, and you can kind of see how roughly related these words are. And then once you've got a basic dictionary of positive and negative words and trained on it, using the connections between words provided by GloVe, the machine can start to infer additional words that it didn't know.
1: And so now that you've got this, you know, you might immediately think, well, so I now have an AI that we with 95% accuracy, even on words that it doesn't actually know already, it can determine whether those are positive or negative in connotation. And so I can use that to say, well, you know, if the language coming from this particular user is largely negative, maybe I should think about moderating that.
0: All right. So you've done the work, you've downloaded the gigabytes of data, you've trained a model and you've unleashed it. I think we'd like to think that just scraping the web, while there's certainly unfortunate places on the web,
1: most of it's rather innocuous, we'd like to believe. What does this model show us? So this is where it's important for a human to actually do real analysis and determine the kinds of associations that this neural network we've trained will make. Um, Although we didn't have to do the work of formally classifying the logic on all these words, and we could let the neural network figure that out for itself, we need to poke at it and prod at it and figure out what those are before we really unleash it on real people. And Robin does that in her post, and it's pretty amazing. After feeding it the the Binglu lexicon and then training it on the glove data, when Robin tests it by saying things like, let's go out for Italian food or let's go out to Mexican food, you find out that the AI thinks that going out for Italian food is a whopping, you know, plus 2.00, very high positive correlation. And going out for Mexican sounds good, but eh, plus yeah, 0.38. So you can see where this is starting to, you know, come into a really unintended bias issue where you can maybe get away with saying some really bad things just by cloaking it and talking about going out, you know, for a specific culture's food. So you might assume then at that point that, uh, you know, people from one ethnicity that talk about one type of food, oddly enough, they start out with a leg up on another ethnicity that really shouldn't be classified in any negative way. And yet it is, or at least just not as positive. So that's the other thing is you might say, well, you know, both those things were positive, so let's not complain about that. Sure, Italian was plus 2.0 and Mexican was just plus 0.38, but they're both good, right? Well, the unfortunate thing is, the AI also learns preferences for people's names. When you feed it the sentence, my name is Emily, you get again a very strong positive correlation of plus 2.22. On the other hand, if you tell it, my name is Shaniqua, negative 0.47.
0: That is an astounding example because really names are basically arbitrary labels that we apply to people. They don't tell you anything more about them and they don't have any inherent sentiment, really. So the fact that it's inferred this from this data set is just
1: astounding. Obviously, this is a podcast about technology not uh, you know not politics, but I do want to say that you know the interesting thing about this is it echoes exactly what people of color have been telling us all along that you know you start out with a few points against you and what should be a neutral situation if you don't fit the cultural default you're starting out in the hole and where this gets scary
0: is we're seeing these types of algorithms being applied all over the place it might affect what sort of loan you get. It might affect if you're approved to to rent an apartment and it might affect a job application. Amazon just recently had to scrap a program that had been using AI to sort of inform some of its recruitment. And it turned out that program learned or thought it learned, quote unquote, that men were better applicants than women. Just just because the data set it was learning on had that characteristic, which is obviously not something we want to reinforce.
1: And we ought to mention also that, you know, it's, it, it's very difficult to overestimate the reach of ai into every single person's life uh, ai is actually a part of your credit score now you can look this up on AmericanBanker.com, where it talks about the use of artificial intelligence to interpret the credit history of a given person and it can adjust your score upwards or downwards and without a whole lot of careful analysis and making sure this kind of bias doesn't creep in your own name could make your credit score worse So, Wes, where do we go from here? Uh, Do we just proceed right to the final scene of Fight Club and, uh, you know, blow the towers up and start burning corn in the highway in our leather pants? Fortunately, no. I I
0: don't think we need to be that drastic. Aww. It turns out you can use techniques to try to measure this stuff. and And that's really to your point of you need humans involved and we need to be thinking critically about that. And thankfully, Robin's got a great example of how you can apply some sort of standard statistical techniques and try to understand just what's going on.
1: Now before we get into the good news at the bottom of Robin's blog post about ConceptNet, um, you know, a lot of you may be thinking, well, you know, if we used Glove as the corpus that we trained this thing on, well, of course it came out terrible because we're just crawling, you know, the World Wide Web at large and there's a lot of terrible things on there. So what if we trained it on a more tightly selected corpus that was, you know, more heavily moderated to begin with and more professional and probably not quite so much garbage? Turns out, there's another source for that. It's called Word2Vec. And uh, Word2Vec was trained on absolutely nothing but Google News. So you've got a lot less informal language, and you've got a lot more... Well, you know, basically corporate and branding friendly, so you, you don't have just horrible racist trolls saying horrible racist things creeping in there, right? Only problem is, when she indulged in the exact same training exercises and analyzed the results, she found it was not only as racially biased as the glove trained subset was, it was actually a little worse. But there is still good news. At the very bottom of her blog post, she talked about uh, something called ConceptNet. Now, ConceptNet is a freely available semantic network that comes from Robin's company, Luminoso. She's the co-founder and chief science officer at Luminoso, and they do a lot of high-level machine learning type stuff there. But in human terms, when you look at a confidence interval plot of the exact same data on number batch versus scikit-learn, it looks pretty even. Everything, all ethnicities are centered just slightly negative of 0.0, but that's okay. As long as everybody's name looks about the same amount of just a little bit bad, it doesn't actually impact the validity of your results. And, you know, in our own words, have we entirely fixed the problem by switching to ConceptNet's number batch? Can we stop worrying about algorithmic racism? No. Did we make the problem a lot smaller? Definitely. I'd also like to point out here that switching
0: to number batch, the accuracy went up. Some people worry that trying to fight this bias might make the machine learning algorithms inherently less useful or less effective, but that's really not the case. There was never anything accurate about the overt racism that Word2Vec or Glove had learned.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. We're not giving anything up to eliminate this bias. At the end of the day, we're using a much more accurate algorithm that classifies things better. But really, I think the biggest lesson we should be drawing from this is not that uh, you know Robin's algorithm was better than Scikit-Learn's. The really big lesson that we need to be drawing is the type of analysis that Robin did where you go through and you examine the AI, and figure out what kind of decisions it's making and a human actually pokes and prods at it and looks for problems, that's a step that you just can't skip.
0: I'd also like to say that we're at a time now where really anyone technical and and non-technical needs to get involved. I was just at SCALE, the Southern California Linux Expo, and listened to a pretty interesting talk from some AI researchers at Facebook. One of the questions the audience posed was, you know, how much, how much I need to know about how to, you know, math and all the complicated algorithms? And the answer is basically, if you're doing common stuff, nothing. You can get data, you can import some available libraries, and start playing around. And I think that means we shouldn't view AI as some lofty thing that's just going to happen. It is a transformational step. It is a new, powerful resource we have in our society. And if we're not also involved, you can be sure that all the other forces out there, big corporations, governments, powerful private individuals, well, they're going to be using it.
1: We might as well be too. That's a great point, Wes. Didn't you say that you actually downloaded all the same tools that Robin used and recreated her results yourself while you were reading her post?
0: Yeah, it's actually really, really simple to work through. You do need a little bit of Python background, and it helps if you've done anything like this before. But she's got all the code posted and links to the datasets. You might have to go hunt down, and it can be useful to try to apply it to other stuff. But. In 2019, there's so many resources, including some of Robin's great write ups. Go start learning this. At least have an idea of what's involved and how it works so that you can be aware of what's happening around you. Before we get out of here today, it's time for some feedback. We got an anonymous question about our previous episode where we mentioned Civic Plus as a plain text offender. They wrote, I work for a local government which uses this platform to interact with our constituents. I checked your show notes, but, well, I was unable to find a direct reference to Civic Plus using poor password practices. Do you have any other information here? Thank you.
1: Yeah, so, uh, Civic Plus, I got the tip from that from uh, Ars Technica reader Bill. Uh, Bill has needed to work with Civic Plus uh, in a couple of capacities, And uh, Bill had noticed that Civic Plus was offering to uh, email him his password in plain text. And he also found another and arguably even kind of worse problem with Civic Plus, which uh, he actually reported to Brian Krebs. And I believe uh, Krebs on Security actually blogged that a while back. The other issue he discovered was that you could just fuzz the receipt URL into Civic Plus um, in a particular uh, GovPayNow.com site Uh, You could feed it a receipt URL with a randomized ID, and without being logged into anything, it would just show you these payment receipts, complete with people's names and, uh, in some cases, even license plate numbers.
0: To me, this just shows that we should all stick together. Sometimes the only method that's really successful is public pressure on these bad actors, And, and we need to make it clear that... As users and people forced to use these systems, we're just not willing to put up with it. So, please feel free always go to go to slash contact or contact me or Jim directly. We'd love to hear if you run into any more plain text offenders.
1: Absolutely, let's take it to them. I will note that I looked at GovPayNet, the specific site that uh, you know Bill was talking about that he had dealt with, where he could just fuzz receipt URLs and uh, open them up from any computer. And GovPayNet has done at least something to fix some of these problems because you can no longer access uh, those receipts in my testing. However, Civic Plus itself is still billing themselves as the trusted leader in cybersecurity for local government and claim we invest over $1 million annually on cybersecurity to mitigate the risks that local governments are facing. Now, I have to question, if you're investing a million dollars annually in cybersecurity and billing yourself as a trusted leader in cybersecurity, why, in September of 2018, are you emailing administrator passwords in plain text? There's really just no reason. Well,
0: with that little bit of extra shame out of the way, we've still got a few final thoughts. I'd just like to mention that Linux Academy has just released a brand new course all about Python. So if you do want to follow through with Robin's excellent article, but maybe your Python is a little bit lacking, go check the show notes. Linux Academy has had a few other resources, particularly around like DevOps and scripting. But this is the first course that really is a, is a deep dive. And even if you are you know haven't really programmed before, you can get up and running with Python in no
1: time at all. Well, Wes, maybe it's time for me to take a look at that, uh, because I keep thinking about moving from the old trusty Swiss Army chainsaw, Pearl, because Python's the new hotness, and I haven't made the jump yet. Maybe it's time. I think it is.
0: Speaking of learning and building new things, I saw you just published a brand new systems guide over at ours.
1: Yeah, we do uh, system build guides over at Ars Technic every now and then, and uh, the one that we did this time was uh, based on server builds. We took uh, three builds of general purpose servers suitable for uh, you know file storage and uh, even virtualization, from less expensive and uh, more power efficient to uh, big rack mounted beast. Ooh, I'm
0: drooling already. Of course, you can find links to that and everything we talked about in our show notes: techsnap.systems/slash three ninety nine. You can also find links to all of our previous episodes and ways to get in touch. If you'd like more Jupiter Broadcasting content, just head on over to JupiterBroadcasting.com or at Jupiter Signal on Twitter. I'm there too. I'm at West Payne and Jim. You're at JRSsNet. Thank you all so much for joining us, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.